Well, good morning, Mercy Hill. Uh, my name is Nick. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, if I haven't met you, I'm happy to have you join in online with us. Um, I'm going to be actually just getting us into God's Word uh, right away. But first, just wanted to give a quick shout out to Tolu. I thought he did a great job last week. It was awesome to uh, get to kind of sit back and see it from another angle. Uh, not that big of a fan of, of, of seeing myself on the screen. It was nice to be able to uh, engage with another brother like him, bringing us God's Word so faithfully, so powerfully. So, uh, Tolu, if you're watching, thank you, man. Uh, but this morning, I'm back up, and we are going to be continuing on in our Do Not Be Afraid series, where you recall, we're just kind of dropping into places throughout Scripture where God uh, talks about this idea, of we, don't, we don't need to be afraid, this, this concept of fear and, and, and how we can kind of manage or, or, or kind of move away from that towards peace and other things in the midst of trials like the one we're facing now. So... As we carry on in this series, the text that we come to actually is going to be Psalm 27. Uh, it's a Psalm of David. I'm going to read it here, then we'll pray, and we'll uh, begin to dive in. So here's Psalm 27. Uh, we're going to read the whole thing. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and, and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. When my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Would you pray with me? God, we, um, we need you right now. We're grateful for this rhythm that in many ways you've instituted, the Lord's Day, where we come together and we open your word and we um, gather around it and invite you, plead with you to speak to us from it. 
God, we admit that we get lost in the weeds. We get lost and turned around as the week goes on. And we need, at the outset, Sundays like a flag in the ground. We need our God to show up and reorient uh, us in, in, in this situation, to reorganize the furniture of our hearts, as it were. Help us interpret what's going on. Help us to see where you are in it. Show us the way forward uh, through and out of it, God. God. We need you to come in these moments. And I pray that you would use this text. I pray that you would use me. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and speak. Speak to your people. And if there are those who maybe are tuning in but aren't even, aren't even following you, aren't even Christians, God, I pray that right now there would be something about what they're hearing, something about what they're seeing in the Scriptures that would draw them to you. They need you more than they even know. We all need you more than we even know. So God, show up, glorify your Son in our midst and help us, help us not to be afraid even in scary times. It's in your name I ask these things. Amen. All right, so let me begin at least uh, with a few words of, of introduction here, just kind of uh, something that I remember one of my old professors at uh, Westminster, uh, David Pallison, one of the things that he would share about the Psalms that I just felt so helpful. Um, sometimes in the Psalms, we are... Uh, told of particular occasions that kind of stood behind the psalm, gave rise to the psalm. You know, if you're wondering, why did David say this? Why is David seeing this? What is he doing uh, here? What was happening here that was making him feel that? Well, sometimes the psalms give us those occasions and tell us what was going on. But other times, it's just kind of generalized. It's just left to conjecture. We don't exactly know what was going on or why David was feeling the way he was feeling, doing the things he was doing. We just know that that's uh, what was going on, and we're not sure what was behind it. And one of the things that Pallison would say, and I, I thought it was so helpful, is he said, listen, this is part of the reason why the Psalms are so uh, pastorally poignant, pastorally useful. Um, it's actually sometimes their ambiguity that is so inviting. And, and what he meant was, was this. Uh, basically, when we come to the Psalms and we don't necessarily know the occasion behind it, we actually are invited, uh, allowed to, uh, drawn in to kind of fill the details out ourselves. In other words, we start to kind of fill in the background with our own narrative, our own story, the stuff we're dealing with. And we start to live the psalm. The psalm and our lives start to become one. We get to kind of color in the words with nuance and detail. In fact, the way I kind of thought about it is like this. I don't know how many of you actually remember what it was like back when we would go out to dinner. Do you guys remember going out to restaurants? These things we had called restaurants where you could sit down and, and, and enjoy a meal that you didn't cook and someone would bring it to you. There'd be a lot of other people. This was back in the old days. But I don't know if you remember doing things like that. But what would happen is if you come into a restaurant with kids, they give you one of those coloring sheets, right? And... Uh, then your kids get to kind of take this coloring sheet, and there's like these broad outlines, you know, there may be a picture of a hippo or what, animals or whatever it is, and they get to kind of color it in, fill it in with their own detail, bring their own personality to it, personalize that uh, little coloring pad for themselves. And in a way, 
God in Psalms like the one we're looking at today kind of gives us that sort of a, a coloring sheet, as it were, where we get the broad outlines of what's happening, but we're invited to color in the details ourselves. We're invited to kind of give it our own, uh, take it and, and make it our own, personalize it. There's a template here showing us kind of, man, what, what to feel and where to go with what we feel and how to express that to God. But some of the details we get to bring to the psalm. And uh, I think that makes it so wonderful. That's essentially what we're going to be doing as we go along today. But in, in many ways, this psalm is, is just kind of like that coloring sheet. Um, so let, let me show you at least the broad outline. Let, let me show you what we know about what David is going through here. There's a clear trial and hardship that he is facing. We don't know what exactly, but we know it's there. Here's some of the things he speaks about. Here's some of the broad lines that are drawn. He speaks of evildoers and adversaries and foes uh, in verse 2. He, he, he speaks of enemies in verse 11 and false witnesses in verse 12. Um, they're circling like a pack of wild dogs, he tells us uh, in verse 2. That's at least how I understand this idea that they, they assail me to eat up my flesh. He says, they're coming at me to take a bite. I don't think he's facing literal cannibals. I think he feels like there are wild animals all around him, okay? He talks about this army of enemies that's encamped against him in verse 3. He says he's facing war and violence, verse 12. It would seem that even closest of, of his kin have kind of abandoned him in these moments. He feels forsaken and abandoned. So we read in verse 10, my father and my mother have forsaken me. That's as close as it gets. The people closest to you, even they have just kind of washed their hands of you in these moments. That's what David is going through. That's what he's feeling, and that's the extent of what we know about it. That's the broad lines. Now, that's the coloring sheet that we're now invited to take, our, you know, take out our colors and fill in the details ourselves. So let me help you think about this for a moment. Start coloring, start personalizing, start relating to David here and filling it in. Anyone around, uh, anyone, I suppose, out there feel like uh, the enemies, their enemies are kind of surrounding them. Uh, anyone out there feel like a pack of, of wild dogs has just kind of started circling around them and yipping at them and showing their teeth? Any, anyone feel like you've been forsaken or forgotten, like you're all alone. Like there's, there's no one to turn to. Even those closest to you have abandoned to you or abandoned you. Now, I recognize that some of this we take metaphorically, but really in some ways, isn't this kind of what we're feeling in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic? feeling like we're, we're, we're being circled by uh, metaphorical enemies, feeling like we don't know which way to go, what's going to happen next, feeling like we've been forgotten and abandoned, feeling like our life is just, our world is just kind of coming undone. And, and so while no doubt our, our situations are different from David's, whatever his was, in some sense there's a certain commonality to them 
uh, in some ways, we've been where David's been, right? We've felt what David is feeling. We understand this. We know it. We're maybe even right there uh, right now. And what's so helpful about this psalm is we kind of learn um, as we kind of go along, and I'll, this is what I'll bring out, we learn what God is up to in these hard times. Uh, we learn why David could kind of say at the beginning, I don't need to be afraid, because we kind of see as we go along in this psalm with David uh, what David is up to in hardship, or I'm sorry, what God is up to in hardship and trial. We, we see why we don't need to be afraid. We see uh, how we should be responding to these trials um, as they come upon us. So what I'm going to do is bring out six things in particular uh, from this psalm that we see God is up to in our trials. Let me give you those six up front, and then we'll just get going. First, we see that he's driving head knowledge deeper into our hearts. Second, we see that he's refining our devotion. Third, we see he's opening us up to instruction. Fourth, we see he's galvanizing our hope. Fifth, he's leading us to Jesus. And sixth, and finally, he's calling us to wait. He's calling us to wait. So these are the things we're gonna see as we make our way through. God is up to in our hardship and our trials. And through all of this, it's kind of why we'll see. Man, here's why we don't need to be afraid. God is up to good in it. We get a better sense of what exactly he is doing. So first, let's take these just one at a time. He's driving head knowledge deeper into our hearts. Um, it seems to me that there are certain things that we will not get of God. We will not be able to understand about God until it's uh, burnt into us, so to speak, through fiery trial and hardship. Um, sometimes in trial, what we kind of knew in concept or knew in principle or knew in idea, we start to know in practice and reality. The trials, the hardships kind of press those realities from our heads, as it were, to our hearts. What We've talked about this before, but what we often recognize is that there is sometimes this massive gap between our heads and our hearts. Physically speaking, it is a short distance, but that can honestly be one of the longest distance to travel when you're talking about the spiritual journey. We can know a lot about God. We can have great ideas of God, and yet that stuff doesn't find its way into our hearts. We don't truly believe it. We're not actually living in light of it. Something else is, is kind of going on there, and God uses trial. He uses hardship to kind of expose that misalignment, to expose the fact that what we know and what we feel and believe are different. He uses trial to expose and then bring those things together to drive what we know with our heads down into our hearts, to make it real for us. Yeah, there's this idea that we know God is good and he's sovereign and he's whatever else with our heads, but do we really know it? Do we really know it? What we see in this psalm is that God through hardship and trial, is going to take David and us, really, and try to kind of drive that knowledge into the heart. He's driving this stuff David knows a little bit deeper in. So let me show you where this is found in our psalm. The psalm, if you noticed, it opens up with this kind of 
bold uh, declarations from David of who God is, what he knows about God. Man, God, you are this, and you are that, and I don't need to be this, because I know this. And he goes off, and it's bold, and it's great, and it's glorious. Listen to it, starting in verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart uh, shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. And he carries on in verse 5. He will hide me, God will, in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. My head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. I'm going to be full of joy and song. That's where David's at in these first verses. He's just extolling God for all that he knows. Man, I know this about you. That's why I don't got to be afraid. That's why I've got confidence. That's why I can look at my enemies and there's no worries. But that's not the full picture that we get from this psalm, is it? Because then, interestingly, and I wonder if you noticed this, it's almost as if all of these things that he just declared with such boldness and confidence are suddenly drawn into question. Uh, they're suddenly uh, seeming like, man, I, I, I'm not sure about this as we make the transition into verse 7. Listen to kind of the change in mood, the change in tone now. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. Skip to, down to verse 9. He says, hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. Now you see what's happening here, don't you? Um, the things that David knows, verses one through six, the stuff he's declaring so boldly, he still, it would seem, doesn't yet fully no, God wants him to really know it. And this trial, this hardship is kind of bringing out this uh, sort of crisis of faith, as it were. It's exposing the gap between the head and the heart. Though he speaks with confidence, his prayers show that in reality he's a bit shaky on this. And so look, I mean, you could just kind of break this down. And it's as if David is kind of saying, is it me you are hiding from my enemies? Verse 5, or is it you that is hiding from me, God? Verse 9, you hear the difference, right? Man, you are going to hide me from my enemies. But then you come down to verse 9, wait, are you hiding from me? Because it seems like the enemies are coming and I don't see you. Been there. Are you my light, my salvation, my stronghold, my shelter, God? Verses 1 and verse 5. Or are you angry with me and even against me? Verse 9. Which one is it? The light, the stronghold, the shelter, or, 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 or against me? Are you lifting me high upon a rock? Verse 5. Or are you casting me off and away? Again, verse 9. Are you lifting me up above my enemies or are you throwing me to my enemies? I can't tell. 
I'm praying that you don't cast me off because it feels sometimes like maybe you are. Are you taking me in and accepting me? Verse 10, or have you forsaken me? Verse 9. So you see, there's this sort of existential crisis that's taking place. There's this tension in David between what he knows with with his head and what he feels and even fears with his heart. And God is trying to bring the two together. He's trying to drive the head knowledge down into the heart to impress these things upon him there. So he can say, man, I know, I really know God is my light, my salvation, my stronghold, and there's no fear here. That's what trials do. They drive this stuff deeper into us. And as I thought about this, I mean, I think your experience would bear this out. Your own testimonies would probably bear this out. Um, We can't really know God as light until we've met him in the place of darkness, right? We, we can't really know God as salvation until we've met him in the place of deep distress. We can't really know God as stronghold or shelter until we've met him in the place of weakness and exposure. We can't really know the fullness of God's acceptance and welcome until we've grieved as one forsaken and rejected by men. I mean, I have no doubt that probably some of the most richest experiences you've ever had with God have come in the midst of some of the most ferocious trials. Some of the hardest, fiercest, fieriest times of your life. And that's when you found God to be living water. That's when you found God to be a rock and a refuge and strength because you were in the midst of something so chaotic and crazy. And you see, God's doing this on purpose. He's driving what we may, oh, I heard that in Sunday school. Oh, I heard that my mom and dad always told me about God and the gospel and he loves me. But now I know it, you see. Now I really know it. Now I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I've tasted the water flowing from the rock in the midst of the wilderness, from the one struck for me, right? That's, I think, if you look at your own testimony, that's how it has gone for you. We know God in theory and principle and in concept, but it's only through trial that we come to know him as such in experience and reality. We come to know him as he really is in reality. Not just a nice, warm, fuzzy little Bible study, but a God who is there for you in the darkest nights. Um, you know, just a, a, a couple nights ago, I had a, a sorry kind of illustration about this, the gap that can sometimes be um, um, persisting between our heads and our hearts. I just wanted to show you this so you can kind of start to sniff it out in your own lives. This is what God is going to do when hard stuff happens uh, uh, to you. Um, so it's kind of a silly example, but I don't mind throwing myself under the bus. Um, I was, you know, it was the end of a long day. I just finished up, you know, with ministry, all this sort of stuff. We were doing dinner, and that was done, and we're getting the kids ready for bed, and I was finishing up dishes and things like that, and I was anticipating, man, I can't wait to get to sit on that couch and relax a little bit, kick my feet up, and, and say, all right, the day is done. It's time to just rest. 
Um, that for me is what I was looking forward to. But as I'm doing the dishes, I dump a little bit too much food down the drain. The disposal can't keep up with it. I don't know if this happens to you. It's happened to us many times. All of a sudden, the water starts to rise. The disposal shuts off. It like shorts out or whatever. And I, oh, no. The water starts to back up in the sink. And because this has happened before, I know what this means. It means I put too much food down there. Now there's all this nasty stuff stuck somewhere in our pipes under the sink or whatever. And I am going to have to spend the next half hour, 45 minutes of my time, unscrewing stuff down there, dumping this nasty throw-up-looking liquid into buckets, getting it splattered on me, and then putting it all together just to get back to square one, cleaning up the floor, all that. And I'm going to tell you, I straight up threw a tantrum. I, I, I mean, it was, it was up there with Levi. Like, I, it was nasty. It was ridiculous. I did not want to do this. And you look at this and you kind of say, man, what is that all about? Why the pouting? Why the anger? Why the frustration? Well, I'll tell you what's going on in those moments. I'm not believing that God is my light and my salvation, my refuge. I can preach a sermon uh, on these subjects. I just finished the day preparing a sermon on those subjects. God is light. God is salvation. God is a refuge in times of trouble. Don't fear. And yet, man, I walk out of my study into kind of the real world, so to speak, and suddenly a clogged sink gets me to abandon faith altogether in this God. And I'm living completely contrary. And you see, God uses those moments, even silly moments like a clogged sink, to expose the gap between my head and my heart, what I know of God and what I'm truly feeling, believing of, about him. You see, in those moments, it was not God who was my light and my refuge and my shelter, but the couch, getting done with my stuff so I could rest. That was my salvation. That's where my hope was, and he's showing me this because he loves me, and he wants to be my salvation. He wants to be my life, and he wants to help me uproot from some of these other things I'm trusting in and reroot in him. Find him to be my light, even in hard times, even when I gotta spend an extra 45 minutes to clean up the yuck under a sink or whatever it is. That's a silly example what we're facing right now with the coronavirus and this pandemic is not so silly, right? I mean, we talk every week about this because if you're watching the news as I am, you just see man, unemployment skyrocketing. You know, people uh, uh, picketing and getting concerned about how the, what the right way is to handle this and fighting and clashing and all this stuff. And, and, and people obviously getting sick and dying and new things that they're noticing with kids and all this stuff. And you go, oh, my goodness, I don't know what to make of it all. But I do know that this sort of fiery trial probably has you feeling the heat a little bit. And it's probably exposing a little bit of that gap between your head and your heart. Like it's easy to talk about the God who provides, the God who cares, the God who is good, when all is good and you have a full pantry and a full bank account. But man, as this stuff comes in, it's like, do I really believe that? Do I really know that? You see, God is driving what we know in our heads deeper into our hearts in these moments. He's helping us realign with the truth. He's wanting to make us, as we've been saying, stable saints. 
Now, second thing then to bring out. So first is this idea that he's driving uh, head knowledge into our hearts. Now we see, and some of these will be longer than others. Um, This one's going to be a little quick. Um, Now we see that he's refining our devotion. Uh, When hardships and trials come, God is refining our devotion. Um, I've spoken of this uh, in recent sermons, but one of the things that trials do is they expose our idolatries, right? They expose uh, perhaps stuff we've been hoping in that ain't going to last, that ain't going to make it through. And when the trial comes and you watch those idols teetering and falling, you're left going, oh my goodness, what am I doing? Where do I go? So one of the things that happens with trials is it refines our devotion or it purifies our heart's affection for God. It, 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 it gives us a singleness of focus and passion. So that, man, he alone, we start to see, okay, that's not going to do it. That's not going to do it. That's not going to last. That's not going to last. And what's left standing, there is God. And our hearts are kind of refined and, and, and our love for him purified. Devotion, uh, more single-minded and focused, united upon him. Uh, we see this in the psalm, kind of brought out in particular in verse 4, where David says this, One thing, hear that, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And the same idea kind of shows up again down in verse 8. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. But you can kind of hear it, right? David is talking about this one thing. There's one thing, he says, that I'm asking for. One thing that I'm seeking after. One thing that I desire. And what is that one thing? Well, it's God. It's not some gift from God. It's not some little, hey, sugar daddy, open up your hand and give me that job or give me that girl or give me that boy or give me that whatever it may be. No, it's God himself. Enough with all this stuff. Give me God. That's what David is saying here. I want to dwell with him. Behold him. See him. Be satisfied in him. So there's this sort of focus, this, this laser focus on God. And, it, and it's interesting that the language of house, you know, I want to get in his house and uh, the idea of the temple here, which really, obviously in David's time, the temple wouldn't have been built. It's the word hekal in, in the Hebrew, and it's also for the palace of royalty um, is what it could be referring to. But it's God's royal house, as it were. And the tent, probably the idea of the tabernacle and this language about sacrifice. What, it's, what all this is showing us is really, uh, David is talking about going to the place of worship. Going uh, along with the congregation into the house of worship, going to the tabernacle, or later on, you know, as Israel would go to the temple. Whereas us now, as we come uh, to, uh, to, to God through Jesus and enter kind of the heavenly courts, as it were, he's talking about worship. He's talking about adoration. He's talking about coming into the presence of God. And, and, and there's this singleness of focus to it, this one thing that he's after. Now, before times of hardship and trial, there are often many things that we're after, right? 
there are often many things kind of on the list. Hey, what am I seeking? What am I doing? What am I hoping for? And there's a lot of things. Let me list this, list this, list this. But trials and hardships have this way of kind of removing those from the picture and centering our eyes on God as our one thing. We kind of come to this fork in the road. Maybe some of you are there even right now. We come to this fork in the road where we're left to kind of say, huh, do I go down with the ship of my own idolatry, stuff of this world? Or do I, do I move towards this one thing? Do I move towards God, the one who is from everlasting to everlasting? The one who's not going down? Do I push all my chips in on him? Um... God wants us, at the end of the day, to be safe. Um, and, and that's kind of the irony. He brings some of these hardships and these trials on us because he wants us to be safe, because he wants all of our hearts. And you say, wants all of our hearts, wants himself to be the one thing. That sounds kind of egotistical, sounds kind of like he's a megalomaniac in the sky. That doesn't sound loving at all. It doesn't make sense. But here's the thing. It's not selfish. It's not uh, 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 that he's a megalomaniac because he alone is the one who knows how to handle our hearts and how to satisfy our hearts, how to protect our hearts. I mean, if he was just one of, of many idols that's, that's going to kind of go down with the ship, that's one thing. He's just jealous and wants our attention. But if he's the only one who doesn't go down, if he's the only one who stays and is firm and, and our hearts can be safe when they're fully tethered to him, listen, that's not uh, selfishness or ego. That's love. And so he's trying to help us. I mean, don't go down with that stuff. Don't, when you tether your hearts to the, anything under the sun, and your heart is tethered to that in some sort of ultimate way, you endanger your soul. You, you, you put yourself in jeopardy. When you tether your heart to your job or this relationship or whatever it may be, and your whole identity and life and joy is wrapped up in that thing, and that ship goes down, listen, it's over for you. And God is saying, don't go there. Man, absolutely, you know, get a good job. Love your spouse and, and give thanks for these things. But at the end of the day, giving thanks means I know the one uh, from whom all of this comes. And if I lose all of this, I still have the one. That's the thing that, I, that I'm bringing out with David. It's not like, hey, shake your little hand and give me some goodies, God. No, it's you're the one. If I have you, I got all that I need whether all this stuff comes or it doesn't. And God draws our hearts to him. He refines our devotion in times of hardship and trial. You get God as your one thing and you cannot be touched. There'll be a certain invincibility to your life. Um, that's what God wants for you. That's what David is learning here Third thing we see that God is up to in trials now. We see that he's opening us up to instruction. And I think this is an interesting one, especially the times that we're in and what I've kind of been hearing from people as I've been discussing some things. But what we realize is that trials are kind of God's way of not only driving deeper into our hearts things we may have already known, but it's also his way of, of, of kind of opening us up to things we haven't yet known. It's his way of kind of opening our hearts up to instruction and the possibility of change and new ideas. You see, we get stuck in a rut. 
We get stuck. When things are going well, we kind of get our little things in place, and we have our ideas, and we have no reason to get outside the box and reconsider them. But then when trials come in, we're disoriented, we're confused, we don't know what to do. We see things from fresh angles. We get new vistas on God and his word and how it all applies to our life and what he may be calling us to. It opens us up to his instruction. Now, uh, we see this in particular in verse 11 of our psalm where David says this. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path. He just says, teach me. And you see, the idea there is, man, I'm open. I'm all ears. Uh, maybe before this, <laughs> you know, these enemies and adversaries and this, this army encamped against me, these dogs howling around me, maybe before this, I, I would have said, hey, I got the plan. Hey, I know what's up. I got the 10-year, the 20-year. I know where we're going. Look at my track record. I've got things figured out. But now that everything is falling apart, I am uh, more aware than ever. I don't know. I don't know left from right, up from down. So you teach me. You lead me. See, he's opened up to instruction now uh, because of the stuff that he is facing, and I, I think for us, and again, in, in, in this time that we're in with this pandemic, uh, the moment that we're in as a church, as a nation, as a world, I mean, this, this is a big one. This is a big one. Um, God is wanting to humble us. He's wanting to open us up. He's wanting to say some things, to change some things. If you're like me, um, you've probably said, man, I can't wait for things to get back to normal. And we use that word, back to normal. I, I just want to get back to normal. As if we know what normal is. And actually, as I began to think about this, I realized, man, what a waste that would be if after all this, we just went back to normal. We just went back to life as we were doing it before. You see, I think one of the things that God is up to in times like this is he's trying to open us up to change. He's trying to show us, man, redirect us, reorient us, give us some new things to consider. And if all we want to do is, in, with haste, kind of get back to normal, then we've missed it. Then we've missed what he's trying to do. We should be with David here saying, teach me. I, I remember talking with um, some of you in one of our various prayer meetings, and I shared how, you know, I'm this season was hard for me at first. I'm, I'm not the kind of guy who's very open to change and flexible and all this stuff. I get my systems. I get my plans. I get the way that I do things, and I like that. It's working. I don't want to change that. And then all of a sudden, this comes in, and I was just saying, you know what? I mean, now, like, all our plans, all my systems, it's all been made such a mess of that it's just, like, all on the table. Like, what do I have to worry about now? What do I have to lose? You, God, where do you want us to meet? Where do you want us to go? What do you want us to do? What do you have for me? Hey, it's just all out there. And stuff that maybe you were kind of tossing around in the back of your mind, um, you know, but were too scared to take that leap or whatever it was that maybe God was kind of prodding you. Now all of a sudden it's like, well, that's a real possibility. I should pray about that. God, what do you have? And you're just open to whatever God was saying. And I just said, man, it's actually been good for me because it's taken me to a place where uh, I should have been all along, namely living surrendered, walking surrendered, open hands, everything on the table. God, you have the permission slip to come in and mess everything up. I am your servant. Uh, it's not the other way around. 
It's not the other way around. Um, it's not lost on me, and I, I thought this was kind of interesting. Uh, it's not lost on me that the last sermon I preached live to you guys uh, was actually the latter part of our week of prayer. It was the, the part two of our week of prayer. That was the last time I saw you face-to-face on a Sunday morning. And randomly, right? I mean, because I couldn't get my act together in January, we're doing our week of prayer, the, the kind of the last week of February. And, 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 and randomly, I say, and yet it's no coincidence that I end this time where the whole week we've just been saying, God, let's, let's seek God's face. Let's ask him what he has for us as a church. Let's ask him where he wants us to go and what he wants us to do. And we come out of that week and everything is just a mess. Everything is just mixed up. And now all of a sudden our hearts are open to it. What is he going to do? How is he going to move us? I don't know. Please pray for us because it's, it's crazy and it's wild. But it's also exhilarating because we know the one who's guiding us forward. And so I would say to everyone tuning in, man, I encourage you, think and pray hard. Don't waste this season. What is God trying to open you up to? What is God trying to teach you? What is he trying to change? So that, man, you don't just get back to life as normal if, God willing, this this season of, of, you know, uh, the pandemic and, and the sheltering in place and stuff ends. You don't just return to life as normal, but you carry with you some of the treasures that were revealed in this time, and you're changed because you've had this posture of teaching and instructing me. Here I am. All right, fourth thing that we see um, is that he's galvanizing our hope. What, in, tri- in times of uh, hardship and trial, God is galvanizing our hope. Um, as our knowledge of God is pressed deeper into our hearts, as our devotion is refined and he becomes more and more our one thing, as we're open to him redirecting and guiding us and we get a sense that he's doing just that, well, I think what we'll see is that we, we start to grow in confidence, in faith, and in hope. We start to realize, man, yeah, God is up to good in this, and our hope kind of grows along with it, and that's part of his purpose. That's part of what he's after in yours and my life, is galvanizing our hope. Now, we see this in particular, I think, in the psalm in verse 13, where David says this, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Now, what he's essentially saying there is, listen, I don't see it yet. Let's be real. The, the enemies and, 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 and the, the, the dogs and all this are still around me. That's what my eyes see. But I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. It's, it's, it's hope. It's hope. It's hoping for, like Paul would say, you know, who hopes for that which they see? No, we hope for that which we don't see yet. It's hope. There's this conviction and this hope that is rising in David's heart. I, I don't see it yet. I'm not sure how it's all going to play out, but I know how it's going to end, and it's going to be good. It's going to be good. As Paul writes in Romans 5, Verses three through five, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God comes through. 
You see, hope would put us to shame if we were hoping in something that didn't come to pass. Oh man, shame on you, shame on me for thinking that it was gonna end well and we were the fools. But hope doesn't put us to shame when our hope is in God and God in the end comes through. Now, we need to do, I think, a little bit of work on this particular statement um, regarding this hope that David has here uh, because I have heard this verse thrown around uh, in many circles and I fear it is often misunderstood and misapplied and it actually has, I think, a little bit more potential to do more damage than good at that point. So I wanted to pause for a moment, make sure our hope, we understand what it is. I don't want us to attach our hope to something God never promised or to something God's not going to necessarily do. I want to make sure we understand what God is saying here through David. Verse 13, again, look at it. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. What does that mean? Does that mean I'm not going to get sick? With the coronavirus, God said it. There's goodness for me. Surely it means I'm not going to die. Maybe some of us scared of, of what could come. You know, maybe the immunocompromised among us. Surely this promise means I'm not going to die of the coronavirus. Uh, does it mean that I'll not lose my job, that I won't lose my money or my family or my health? Does it mean that it may look bleak for me now, but man, just hold on in faith and prosperity is coming? And soon, you know, in, in, in time, God is just going to kind of crack open the heavens and all the goodness is going to come down. Not, not in heaven. No, 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 no. But in here and now. We all know that good stuff is waiting for us in heaven when we sit on the clouds with our harps or whatever that means. But here and now, doesn't that what that says? In the land of the living. Isn't that what that means? Here and now, right? Like, I want the goods here and now. That's what God promises, right? That's what I'm going to lay hold of by faith. I'm going to claim that. He said it. I'll believe it. Well, I fear if we take it that way, not only are we sadly misguided, but we will be sorely disappointed. And I dare say that we're kind of playing into the devil's hands and falling into the trap that he has Set. Um, I don't have time to do all that I wanted to do with this, but let me at least take you here as a starting point. I wonder if you remember Jesus' own temptation by the devil there in the wilderness. Because it's very interesting. The devil takes a psalm and a verse from a psalm not uh, uh, too much unlike the one we're looking at right here. And he uses it to tempt Jesus in a certain direction, towards a certain interpretation, towards the kind of interpretation I just said, isn't that what it means? And we're going to realize, oh my goodness, we're playing into the devil's hands. And Jesus sees through it. And I wanted to show you this. Psalm 91, okay, the psalmist says this in verses 9 through 12. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. That sounds nice, right? 
That sounds like if you believe in God and you make him your refuge, you will just kind of skate through life unscathed. And so there Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. First couple times in Luke's account, at least, Jesus responds with scripture, resists the temptation by quoting scripture. Satan says, okay, you can quote scripture, you appreciate scripture, I can quote scripture too. And he reaches into his bag of tricks and pulls out the latter part of of, of these verses I just read from Psalm 91. And here's what we see. He he takes Jesus up to kind of the the, the pinnacle of the temple, we're, we're told, there in Jerusalem. And he says, listen, now here's what I want you to do. Throw yourself down from here. Because listen, I read those verses. I read the Bible, and here's what it says. That, that God's not going to let anything happen to you. The angels are going to cushion your fall. You're going to come away from that without scrape or bruise. If you're the son of God, this promise will surely be fulfilled for you. And you see what he's trying to do. He's trying to get him to misinterpret and misapply to get Jesus to think that God, if he loved him and was true to his promise, he would not let him suffer at all. He's tempting Jesus to abandon the idea of the cross in the very place where Jesus, in but a few years' time, will be delivered over to it. Did you hear that? He takes him to Jerusalem. He sets him up on the temple. And he said, God, if he loved you, if you're truly his son, he won't let you get hurt, right? That's what the scriptures say, right? Trying to get him already to question the love of God in the plan of redemption uh, by the sons going to the cross, suffering, struggling, dying even. So what does Jesus do? Well, thankfully, right, Jesus stands his ground. He's not like you and I, so often susceptible to the temptations of the devil. He stands. He doesn't cave in. He sees these promises in view of the whole scope of biblical revelation and the entirety of God's plan. He sees the timeline extending beyond this world and into eternity. He understands what God is saying in Psalm 91, and we could say he'd understand what God is saying in Psalm 27, in light of eternity. And that makes all the difference. It is absolutely true that we will see the goodness of God in the land of the living, but everything hinges on where exactly this land of the living is. Now, certainly we could say, and probably in David's mind, the land of the living is here and now under the sun. Okay, And we understand that now we will experience some of the goodness of God, no doubt, even in our trials and the hardship, even in our our deaths. Sometimes those can be the sweetest moments of fellowship with Jesus, like I've said. But man, what we need to understand, and when we bring in the fullness of God's revelation that David was just seeing shadows of at the time, we get that ultimately, and if I could use a big theological word, eschatologically, the land of the living is the new heavens and the new earth. Because it is there and only there that we shall rise never to die again. And it is there and only there that there will be no sorrow. 
that there will be no grief, that there will be no death. Those things will be done away with. Just wrap that up, put it up in the scroll, and set it aside on the shelf. Death is no more. That's the ultimate land of the living, the new heavens and the new earth coming for us on the other side of hardship, on the other side even of the grave, unless Jesus returns first. But it's there that we will see all the fullness of the goodness of God to us in Christ. It's there that we'll see not one word from his mouth has been spoken in vain. Not one promise from him to us has failed. That's where you're going to see it in technicolor, the goodness of God. Here's why Jesus would tell his own disciples. Let me just give you a few verses. Luke 21, uh, verses 16 to 19 You will be delivered up, he says, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you will be put to death. (laughs) He just says it. He just names it. Listen, this psalm doesn't mean you're not going to be put to death if you follow me. Let's get that clear. Some of you will be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But, and here it is, this is where everything changes. Verse 18, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Do you hear that? Which is it, Jesus? Am I going to be put to death, suffer, struggle, die? Or am I going to be victorious, conquer, and live? Jesus would say, yes, both. In fact, man, it's going to be through suffering and holding on to faith and taking refuge in me in the midst of the suffering and the struggling and the dying that you are going to be catapulted into this life. I guess I'll maybe stop there for time's sake, but Mercy Hill, the encouragement here is that we set our hope not on the facts, like looking at Psalm 27 and going, ooh, look at that. The Psalms are gonna, or I'm sorry, the stocks, are, my stocks are gonna rise again. Don't set your hope there. Or, or set your hope on, oh, you know, oh, a- after I may have lost my job, but according to this Psalm, I'm gonna get an even better job next. Don't, don't set your hope there. We, we don't know for sure. That's not the promise. No, instead, do what Peter says in verse 13 of chapter one, 1 Peter 1. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God will be good to us here and now. Absolutely, he will. But he will be good beyond our wildest imagination there and then. Set your hope there. Fifth thing that we see, and this is where I'll start to really bring things to a close in case you're worried. Uh, he's leading us to Jesus. In, in trial, in hardship and trial, God is leading us to Jesus. In every psalm, there is this dynamic that's taking place between two parties, if you will. There's the one who is doing the singing, and then there is the one who is being sung to. And the former, we understand, is usually man, the psalmist, and the latter, we understand, to be God, that in the psalms, man is singing to God. But here is what we must see. Jesus, 
as fully man and fully God. Uh, in essence, he is always the, the, the ultimate fulfillment of both sides of this dynamic. He, he takes up the song as a man and sings it to God for us, and he takes up the side of God and becomes the object of our worship and adoration. So let me just show you that a uh, little bit, just to show you how God is bringing our attention to Jesus, even in the midst of this psalm, in the midst of our trials. On man's side, is it not that Jesus could sing uh, this psalm out uh, as the, perhaps the new and, and greater David. Think of Jesus' life. Was he not assailed by evildoers, adversaries and foes with an army of enemies that camped around him, hurling false accusations, bloodthirsty, breathing out violence? Does that not just define the cross? describe what he was experiencing. Is it not true that just as David says, my father and my mother have forsaken me, so too Jesus would be abandoned by his closest kin, that they would all kind of leave him alone. And where David in our psalm, if you notice, says, but God's gonna take me, and he takes consolation in the fact that God is gonna receive me even when all my earthly relations go. Jesus had to deal with the reality even further than this, where God, his father, not just earthly relations, but God, his father, on that cross would forsake him as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet in it all, is it not true as well that Jesus was single-minded, that there was one thing that he yearned for, one thing that he lived for, right? I mean, he's down on his face and he says, man, my heart is troubled, but what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour? No, for this hour, this is why I came. Father, glorify your name. His one purpose, his one devotion was to his Father, was to God. And as he held on in faith in his resurrection, he very much did see the goodness of God in the land of the living. And he came declaring of that goodness to his disciples and he ascended to the right hand where he becomes the object of our worship. And he moves now then to the other side of this psalm where we see he fulfills God's part as well because David is singing to the God that he knows, right? Yahweh as revealed in the Old Testament. But that Yahweh is revealed in high definition, as it were now, in the New Testament in the person of Jesus. Like, he is the expressed image of the glory of God, the radiance of that glory coming out from Jesus. So Jesus is, right? Look, think about this. He is my light and my salvation, my stronghold, my shelter. When you're scared of the wrath of God, it's due you for your sin. May we run under Jesus and take shelter, take refuge. When Satan, sin, and death come knocking, man, he is the place that we find uh, 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 shelter and covering. He takes those things. They buffet him, and I remain secure inside. And it's now by looking at Jesus preeminently that I gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, right? Paul says, we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. One thing I want to see, God in his glory. Well, where are you going to see it? The face of Jesus Christ. Look at him. His love for you, his conquering of sin and death and his return for you. 
He's the fulfillment of the tabernacle and the temple and all that it stood for. He is our dwelling place. He's my acceptance with God, my hope for life eternal. He's the reason I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. It's all about him. And what we realize is that in our hardships and our trials, man, God is driving us to the one who is no stranger to them. He's been through it, knows all about it, faced more than we could even understand, and yet he's come out the other side victorious, and he's ready to shelter us, help us, protect us, care for us in the midst of it. And this just kind of leads to the last thing I would say, because even though the very last verse of this psalm is, it seems, David kind of exhorting perhaps others who are struggling as well, I couldn't help but hear Jesus speaking it to us. I think this last verse is what he would be saying to you and I Right now, let me read verse 14. Because he has passed through the shadow of the cross and because he's entered into the new day of the resurrection, because he knows that good is coming and God is here and he's, he's, he's standing now on the far side and yet he's right here with us. What he can tell us is this, what he wants us to get and, and what he wants to leave us with in the midst of our trials is this, verse 14, Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. I think that's what Jesus would want to minister to us right now. I think sometimes in the midst of our trials, man, we are just so prone to rush off and try to fix or whatever it may be. Give up hope, abandon hope. Jesus says, I've been there. I've been forsaken. I know what it's like. I've been abandoned. I've been through the suffering. And God comes through every time. Wait for him. Wait for him. So I don't know where you're at, but I pray that with me, we would be able to find ourselves by God's grace, able to not be afraid, but instead to wait for the Lord. Let's pray. God, we... Rejoice that even in hard times you are up to good. That you are on the move in our lives and you're doing more than we can imagine. We just outlined a few things here today. I pray that it encourages your people. I pray that it, it, it establishes them, uh, helps them to stand firm in the midst of hardship without fear. To know that you're driving head knowledge into their heart to know that you're refining their devotion to make them safer and more stable, to know that you're, you're galvanizing their hope, you're leading them to Jesus, you're opening them up to instruction and bringing them into good things and that you're coming and you're worth waiting for. So God, thank you for this time and I pray that you would bless your people um, as they go about their weeks. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, with that, you can join me and others in the after party. You'll see a link uh, show up there in the chat. Just click on that, and you'll be launched into the waiting room, and we'll uh, let you in, and we'll spend time praying, uh, chatting, and even uh, singing some songs to God. I hope to see you there, and I hope to see you in person soon. Love you guys. God bless you.